Welcome to the Gamers Over 50 podcast. This is episode 65 and part of a larger set, but how are games made and talking about programming in games. So one of my goals for 2022 was to learn a new language. And I thought about French and Mandarin Chinese and Farsi. And those all seemed like really good languages and incredibly hard and probably something I wouldn't have anybody to practice with at home. So I decided to move on to HTML and CSS. Now, HTML and CSS are how we write web pages. So the web pages you see like that. I'm not going to dive too much into that because I just want to talk about how this kind of came out. But, you know, I had to decide how I wanted to learn these. And so to give you an idea, I decided, hey, a book, class. And since I was doing this on a budget, I was like, oh, a book. So went to Half Price Books, looked at about 20 books. And I love half price books because they don't like say, hey, sir, this isn't a library and kick you out. Although I don't think people ever do that anymore. But I got a great book called A Smarter Way to Learn HTML and CSS. Now, why did I want to learn HTML and CSS? Um, partly because I wanted to build a website. Second, I just thought it would be kind of nice to finally be able to look at HTML source code and know exactly kind of what they're trying to do there or understand why something looks a certain way. And then I saw this tweet at some point where somebody found a problem. I think it was in Missouri's website and they were calling the person a horrible person for showing them a fix for it. And I'm like, you know, it would be nice to see that. Anyhow, so I created gamersover50.com. And now I have a website out there. So if you want to take a look, go ahead. I'll also put it out in the tweet and stuff. But let's talk about what game programming is. Because programming is exactly what I just kind of talked about. But I want to talk about game programming. And game programming is a sub, sub you know, it's a subset of software development, mainly for video games. Of course, where did I get this information? Wikipedia. Please donate to Wikipedia as always. But, you know, game, it talks, game program really talks that you need to know uh, software engineering. You need to understand how to code in a given language. And we'll talk about some of those. And then you also have to have a kind of specialization, either simulation, computer graphics, AI, artificial intelligence, physics, audio program, input. And you can get into very, very in-depth pieces. And we will. Not today. We're going to be talking about programming languages. But I am going to get some folks together, and I'll talk about this in the end, and start uh, talking to them about development in games because I think it's really cool stuff. I think as kids are learning code more, it's good to have an idea of what's happening in programming. Plus, there's some really interesting obscure facts, and we all know I love obscure facts in that. All right. So then we have you know we have these programming languages. We'll talk about that, and then we have tools to develop programming languages, and you know they. Like most programming, you need a compiler to create an executable that's been the same way. Well, except for in like DOS, Microsoft DOS, sometimes in Linux, you just need to run a, a file and it runs. Anywho, but, uh, you know, this this basically is how we do it. Um, you can create source code in any text editors like Notepad or many of the other ones like Notepad++, Visual, Visual Studio, uh, Eclipse. Um, except for the Visual Studio and Eclipse are considered what they call integrated development environments. And we'll talk a little bit why those are important, because not only when you're programming, 
do you want to create something, but you may not have to create everything. So that's kind of a, a hint towards one of the other topics. All right. So programming languages. And if you're not in the technology, this will probably sound kind of odd and interesting and hopefully brand new. And if you are in the technology, please don't spell check me. You can if you want. I don't care. Uh, I am sure I'm going to say something. But the other side of it is I'm also going to say, you know, there are a lot of ways to do that type of stuff in technology. So everybody can be right for a little while or in their own point, which is great. And I actually do that with customers. What is it that you're trying to be correct about? And we'll help you get that correct, because maybe my thought about what you need to do and what you need to do eh, is not always the same thing. So I always like them to be happy first. Because since they write the checks and stuff, you know, haha. Ha. But if you haven't ever really gotten into technology, you probably have heard of one language out there. And this is not a game language. It was for me, but basic, which was the very first language I learned to write in. Now, basic is beginners, all purpose, symbolic instruction code. And yes, I looked that up. I knew it a long time ago. And I was like looking at my five and a quarter disc and going, oh, no, I've forgotten stuff. But really looking at what basic is, that's one language. So giving you an idea, you're going to hear some other names. And you may see it. And if you're in technology or if you've got kids that are getting into technology or even in middle school, you're going to hear these languages. All right. So probably the first language that comes up when you look at a, a, a gamers over 50 view, which is I'm looking back a very long period of time plus to today, is assembly language. Assembly language is a machine code instruction. And it's specific to the machine. Now, nowadays, we kind of have PCs and we have Macs. And before we had PCs and Macs, we had, I mean, we had PCs and Macs back then, too. We had a ton of different machines. I mean, every company was making them. HP, Compaq, which you probably, if you hopefully know, or one of my favorites, and we'll talk about another one, is Digital Equipment Corporation, which nobody ever knows, or DEC, if you know it. Good. You're over 50. You've, uh, you can listen to the podcast. And if you're under 50, it's okay. Go take a look at them. They were once running the world in technology. But, it, you know, assembly is built for that machine and it takes executable machine code. So it's the, what the machine needs to get. And then it creates a program and it's referred to as an assembler. So it's assembly. And I think it's one of the coolest languages. And the reason why I say that is it's very complex because again, it's to the machine. So you have to learn all those specifications, but it also can be very simple because what you may be trying to do is if someone pushes a button F10, we print. So F10 makes everything go out to the parallel port. And that's what assembly language did. Um, it is something that you may never use, you may never see, but it's also important to remember because it's kind of that beginning block. And it was using hexadecimal and binary items to code. So, and I say items because there's your values, you have variables, there's all sorts of stuff of programming. We'll get into that later. This isn't just the first podcast, but you may be saying, wait, what is binary and hexadecimal? You know, and I'm glad you asked. So here is your really cool subject of the day. If you've ever watched The Big Bang Theory, um, there's one time when Sheldon is like arguing with Leonard about who should be on the top of the Christmas tree, if it's Sir Isaac Newton or Gottfried Leibniz. Well, we can thank Gottfried Leibniz for building the basis 
not creating it, not inventing it, building the basis of binary code. Binary code is basically if you turn your switch off and, there, and lights go off, it's a zero. If you turn it on, it's a one. That's how I learned it. I had a teacher do it and they were flipping it back and forth, back and forth. However, it came from the figures of Chinese origin called Fu Ji. F-U-X-I. I hope I said that right. I really should have called my friend Kevin because he would have told me that. He's fluent in Mandarin. Okay, so binary systems predated. So binary being on or off, open or close, right? Understood, like we can open an aqueduct, close it. Um, we're coming around, coming from 9th century China, but Leibniz kind of brought that into mathematical or the arithmetic, or I'm not even going to try to say this correctly, but the La arithmétique binary. So that's my best French, and it's really bad because I watched a Wes Anderson movie. Um, but really, the binary comes from, you know, the, the concept of it comes from 9th century China, which is really cool. However, hmm, they used to have slit drums in Africa and Asia that they used binary tones for coded messages. And the Indian scholar and Pingala around the 5th and 2nd centuries were using hmm, binary, binary systems describing, I don't know what atrocity is, I should probably look that one up, um, but describing information. Uh, even in French Polynesia, they were using a hybrid binary decimal system before 1450. So binary has been around forever. Of course it has. It's light out, it's dark out, right? Binary. But people were starting to push this in the math. And you know, that's what's really kind of cool about it. And we're going to talk about, you know, when you see an 8-bit binary kind of message, it means there's 8 bits and uh, the first one is a 1. And you go 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128. And if you see a, a 1 in there, then you count the number and you use, say, an EBCDIC, E-B-C-D-I-C, uh, encoding to create messages. So if you want to do code messages, go learn and we'll maybe we'll talk about this. It'll be a fun do code stuff. But that's binary. Hexadecimal is a lot more difficult. But hexadecimal um, is a base 16. There are 16. So 0 through 9 and A through F are your characters. Now you're probably saying, okay, I don't know how to multiply an A times a 7. Don't worry because they're they're, they're numbers based inside of what their value is. Anywho, so those characters were created, in effect, in China again. And, you know, in, in 1952, they really came out with the first hexadecimal recorded macaronic sense that combines the six in hex with the Latinate of decimal. So you have hexadecimal. So we didn't get the name really put together till 952. So we were, you know, people were calling it what it is. So it's a 16 digit code, uh, sorry, value system to do this. So when someone says hexadecimal and they're going, oh, that's really cool. Uh, what's really great about it is, is it's ingrained into programming languages nowadays. It is, you know, dealing with say, uh, instead of dealing with say a four or a half of a byte, because a byte is eight bits. Uh, and a bit is like that zero or that one. So it's like zero, you know, zero, one, zero, 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 zero is a blank space. I think if I'm remembering, uh, 
But the cool thing about the this is if you're programming and you have 10 values, great. If you have 16 values and instead you've doubled the ability of what you're able to work with, and it is incredibly efficient, you know, um, from that point of view. Now, it's only efficient to the point of when you start until you start hitting the speed. Now we're in a speed factor. We're seeing things where they're still going to be in hex, but it's great. All right. I probably bored you to death about hexadecimal. Apologies. But it is a really interesting concept. Um, it is, you know, trying to teach people the metric system would be easier than teaching everyone hexadecimal. Be, I'd rather try to bring back a dinosaur than bring back hexadecimal. Okay. So binary and hexadecimals out there, the building blocks, pieces of other languages. The next language is C. And if you've been in programming, you've heard of programming, C is built was, I should say, was mainly built for one of the original main computer systems that was around. There were 600,000 of these PDP-11s. Now, if you know what a PDP-11 is, it's the tape drives. If you ever watch like war games, not the really big computer that was trying to blow everybody up, but like the ones in the background with the tapes spinning around, those are probably PDP-11s. So if you're watching like an older movie, um, there's a good Kevin Costner one where he's in the, in the Navy. I think it's called No Way Out. It's like he's a, he's a spy or something. But there's a lot of PDP-11s in And I was like, ah, cool. But, some, you know, Dennis Ritchie and Ken Thompson were like, you know what? We need to create a programming language for these PDP-11s. And they did. And it was built and based upon and gone, moved into the Unix world. Now, if you've never heard of Unix, Unix is an operating system very similar to Linux. Unix is kind of Linux's great-great-grandfather. And there are other icks out there. So really looking at the PDP-11, building on that C, it created that whole programming environment. So we started really getting into programming. Now, at the time, we were programming in mainframes. But these PDP-11s were getting, like, these were 16-bit microcomputers. So we were getting almost to the PC. They were still, they weren't taking up floors of buildings or rooms of buildings. They were taking up just a big space, kind of like Coke machine. Uh, used to take up, not the new ones that have all the, the fancy robots, but if you're looking at PDP-11s and you're looking at C, it's kind of that beginning and that creation of programming languages. And it's still used today, including in what we call ANSI C, ISO C, embedded C, C3PO. No, not C3PO. No, that's a, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Feeling a little happy tonight. Um, and I'm only drinking water. So C++ is the next language. So we started out with C. Of course, we had to have plus plus makes it better, right? Actually, the increment isn't considered an operator in C. So this is an operator that does a function in C. And what's really great about C++ is that, you know, they, there were some other names for it, but I think it's really good because it added features for virtual functions. So you could do virtual items. So, you know, and, and function names and creating references and constants. So if you've ever kind of done anything in Excel, you're going to have those references, you're going to have those constants, and you're going to have those functions. So think about Excel, right? But Excel isn't a game, unless you really like to do Excel. But Minesweeper is a game. And Minesweeper and Excel aren't that far off because you have a constant of knowing where all the little bombs are in Minesweeper. And then when you click on an open space and not the bomb, it kind of gives you an idea of where you have those references. So 
cool. Anywho, 1985 was when the first edition of C++ was released. So see, we kind of went from the 70s into the 80s. You see a theme here, right? Because you can kind of get an idea. But really, all of those languages had their first building in the, in the Unix environment. And Unix, and I actually worked on Unix, and I worked on another uh, flavor called Xenix, X-E-N-I-X, were PC-based. It was the first kind of like, you know, we had like DOS and things like that, and then Windows. But this was Unix, and Unix is super powerful. And from a programmer's standpoint at the time, it was a lot easier to work in Unix because you're working in a command line, You'd been working in the command line almost all your life in the up until the 80s anyways. Stay in the command line, write code, run code, see if the code works. Awesome stuff. But C++ took you know, such an advantage of it. And again, it had a lot of those features and functions into it. All right, the next one, if you haven't heard of it, I'm amazed because you probably have had to install something on it, is Java. Now, Java was the project of creating Java and initiate and put together was done by James Gosling, Mike Sheridan, and Patrick Naughton. And they started doing this in June 1991. And they they really wanted to do this for interactive television because they thought cable industry was going to be huge. Well, it kind of is, but really the game and entertainment industry is like eclipsing cable TV. I mean, everybody has cable TV, but it, and you know, and some people don't because they're cutting the cord. Everybody has games. Now, they originally wanted this name that Java Green, but then we're like, you know, we want to rename it like after a coffee. So, ta-da. It, Java is really good, but it has a C++ and C++ syntax. And syntax is kind of how you write things. So, you know, how noun, verb, adjectives, adverbs. That is the syntax of programming. Again, people who have probably worked in technology are all like rolling their eyes right now or laughing because they're like, oh yeah, you all know this. Um, the very first public implementation, because these guys had played it for a long time, was delivered in 1996 by Sun Microsystems. So you probably don't hear of Sun Microsystems anymore because they were absorbed. I'll tell you by who in a second. But what was really happening in 1996 and in the early 90s were things were running on web browsers. And they were starting to run more on web, web browsers and happening more inside the web browser. And Java was a light, easy language that had a ton, a ton of multiple configurations on different platforms. So we're talking like, you know, this is pre-having cell phones. So you have PC, you have Unix. You could put Java on the cable box. It was on the cable box, actually. You know, those early cable boxes you flip through, Java, most of them. And then in web browsers. So when you're working in a web browser and you were like, oh, I'm going to go, you know, do this order, probably written in Java in the 90s. Now, this predates Amazon and, you know, folks like that. So we'll talk a little bit about other languages. But Java ran everything. So you could be running on a supercomputer or you could be running a game console. Both equally awesome. And what's really awesome about Java is it created an entire set of functions, which we're going to talk at the end, called APIs, or Application Programming Interface, which is where 
I could write something, maybe a print routine, and I'm going to stay on the print routine. Like every time you hit F10, it's going to open the printer thing. And it's going to say, select your printer and what color, and it's going to choose all the functions like you do when you print. That's an API. Every time you hit print, somebody has built that. Sometimes it's the printer owner. It could have been in the times of Java. It could have been, say, someone, you know, in, a, in just another country did it. Or it became a necessity. Oh, I want to print, but I also want to be able to print in color or black and white. And I'm going to tell the printer what to do. So an API will do that. We're going to talk about those in just a sec. Okay. So from there, uh, Java was then absorbed by Oracle. So if you've ever heard of Oracle, Larry Ellison, the guy who likes to sail a lot. <clears throat> they make a lot of fun of him, I think, on that uh, Silicon Valley. I'm not a Larry Ellison fan, as you can probably tell. But Java was kind of created to be used everywhere. So it would be working on Windows. It could work on a Mac. It could be in Linux. It could run on all the old solar, Sun, Sun Microsystems, Solaris computers. We're really hitting like when I was in my heyday of learning technology um, with this. And it created a Java SE platform, which would run programs for end users. And they had a Java development kit or a JDK, which was to given to a software developer. So I'm a software developer and I need to print something. I don't have to go find it. It's now in my developer kit. Woohoo! So, all right. So Java has really been one of the most dominant languages for a long time. Um, there was a time and a term when it was called anyone but Microsoft and people were like, oh, I'm going to run Java because it's not Microsoft's coding languages, which we'll talk about in a second, giving everybody free press. But eventually Microsoft's like, yeah, we run Java too. So everybody runs Java. Hey, the next one, speaking of Microsoft, is Visual Basic um, or what we would call the .NET environment a while back. It's changed itself. Um but I really couldn't help but bring up Microsoft because I coded in Microsoft DOS, the basic environment, which I still can't remember. And I have to go back and read it again. Um, but, you know, I did write my first programs and I've taken a ton of training. And I right now, I'm, when, the, when I'm building the website, I'm visu using Visual Studio Code to build the website. So, you know, Visual Studio Code, which is available today, was created off Visual Basic, a language that Microsoft created. And they, you know, th this is the this is the buzz term in programming at the time, object-oriented languages. And, you know, basically that means that you're programming a language where you can put like a box on the screen and you punch the box or you push the box and boom, something happens. And, you know, it really, really took over the Windows world. Now, you didn't see a lot of people running Linux using, you know, Linux systems that had Visual Basic programs. You may today, but not then. And Visual, Visual Basic was kind of Microsoft's foray into saying, hey, we want to program too. The good news is Microsoft had Visual Studio, which was where you could program. And then they went from Visual Basic to like Visual C, C++, even have Java that you can program. So if you want to use their tool, you can. You don't have to, but... Visual Basic. Objective-C, I object. No, uh, Objective-C is, sorry, I just, we saw the, um, oh, shoot. Got Reese Witherspoon in it. It's one where she's a lawyer. I can't remember the movie, which is going to drive me crazy later. But uh, Legally Blonde, <laughs> we were watching that, and she said Objective, and always made sense. But Objective-C came out 
of a couple of folks were taking C and saying, hmm, let's make C different. And they wanted to make it different for the next computer. Now, if you know what the next computer was, it wasn't the next computer. It was capital N, lower E, X, capital X, capital T. And Brad Cox and Tom Love started developing this. Now, next or the next computing was Steve Jobs' gig after Apple fired him. Now, they fired him. If you haven't didn't know that, they fired him. Then they rehired him. But they fired him and he said, you know what? I'm going to create the best computer ever. And I'm telling you what, I had friends and myself would be like reading websites on this. And we wanted one of these computers so bad. And they were like $10,000. And we did not make $10,000. We couldn't even pool our money together to get one of these. But it was brought in to become kind of this, you know, uh, developed for non-Apple operating systems. But it also could run on Apple operating systems as well. And it really had that kind of the beginning going into next. And then of course, you know, Steve Jobs goes back and he's like, Hey, come on back. And they really created objective C to become a language for, you know, going into a user interface and interface building and really look at it from the same thing. So if you knew C, you could probably pick up objective C really well. And you could, you know, sit there and you do what they would call class libraries. Now, you probably have heard a DLL, dynamic link library. Class libraries is the grandfather or great uncle to DLLs. Or, so what's really crazy is that connection to Steve Jobs and how Objective-C became another language called Swift or a spinoff of Objective-C with Swift. Okay. Promise, two more languages. <laughs> Python is an X language. Now, this may be the most well most well-known language right now because preteens and elementary school kids are learning it in school as well as adults and it's a very general purpose language. And it supports a ton of different ways to program, parent, you know, object oriented, we've talked about that, normal functional. And it's what's really great about this is it has the perfect name. It's, it's described as the battery included language because it has, remember those APIs and those libraries, a set of functions out there. It has one of the most comprehensive libraries of functions. So if you want to create a program at home that will go and pull data off of certain sites and then print it out for you or save it for you, maybe you want to see what your horoscope is every day. Python's going to be your best, easiest bet because somebody out there has probably said, pull my horoscope as a function. And all you have to do is write a little bit of code to save it in a file for you. That's why Python is really good. Now, um, the other kind of thought process of Python, and there's a book called The Zen of Python that's out there. And I should probably, let me start with, Python was released uh, in 2000. And it really had functionality everywhere. Python 3.0 was released. 2.0 was released. Sorry, Python was released in 2008. And then Python 2, which was right before it, was discontinued in 2020. So you can see Python just basically keeps taking a step of 2 to 3. We'll have Python 4. It is the most, you know, basically the most popular program language. Now, remember... All of these are programming languages. We still have to talk about programming hardware and we still have to talk about game engines and some other things like that. I'm not going to do it on this podcast, but these are all the languages 
behind it, programming it, telling what to do. So there's a ton more pieces to this puzzle just for everybody. But uh, going back to Zen of Python, it says beautiful is better than ugly. Explicit is better than implicit. Simple is better than complex. Complex is better than complicated. Readability counts, which means if you can't read your Python code, <clears throat> and I'm thinking of a preteen that's been on this podcast before, who wrote Python code? And I just looked at it and was like, um, okay, let's redo this a little bit. But Python is one of those ease and functionality. But again, you can make things very complex or difficult and you can make them not very complex and difficult. And Python kind of says it's easy to do that. And notice I haven't told you to put comments in your code or things like that. I'm not going to tell you how to code. I'm just talking about the languages. I don't want to get people angry at me. All right. The next language, and I promise this is the last language, or is it? <laughs> is JavaScript. Now, we talked about Java, and then we have JavaScript. And it is a often abbreviated programming language that is one of the core technologies of the World Wide Web, or the internet as we know it, alongside HTML and CSS. <gasps> Why did I add this one in? Exactly just because of that. But JavaScript is built in there. So I actually considered doing JavaScript or HTML and CSS. And I felt like if I went into JavaScript, I was going to get really down the rabbit hole and then have like this website that would be giving me, uh, making me stare at it for very long hours and things like that. But what's great about JavaScript is all major web browsers are dedicated to executing code. So like when you run something in JavaScript, so maybe a game on your PC that you're pulling off Facebook or something, it's probably going to be in JavaScript and it's all running on your device, but you have to download it almost every time to run it. You still have your save game is over here. Your data is over here, but the program is downloaded. And they were, you know, JavaScript was really only ever used in web browsers. Now, this is the cool, obscure fact. So if you did not know, the origin of JavaScript started with Netscape. Now, Netscape, if you've never heard of them, was pretty much the first web browser ever. Everybody will say we had the this one or that one. There were They were all released kind of a similar time, but Netscape was released, and it had a gra- graphical user interface called Mosaic that was kind of built into this. And it was really easy for people who are non-technical to use. It was also very easy for people who are technical to use uh, because it was great. And it, you know, it was very nice. Uh, Netscape Navigator came out in 94. And, you know, the folks at Netscape and the folks at Sun Microsystems kind of said, hey, we want to put Java, because remember Sun created Java. We want to put Java into this. And so, back and forth. They created something kind of called LiveScript. Originally, this became JavaScript Ta-da, by Netscape. Now, you probably have heard the marketing term. The first to market is always the one to win. Well, do you ever know about, do you ever, are you using your Netscape Mosaic browser today? Probably not. But Microsoft, because they were having this browser war with Netscape, which is a really cool topic to go read their books on it. I think there's a movie on it uh, as well. I don't know if there's a movie on it. I know there are books on it and there's definitely podcasts and stuff like that, but Microsoft, so they could cut off Netscape adopted JavaScript into their environment. Now at the time, Microsoft and some microsystems 
we're fighting it out on the operating system world and the server side, as well as the desktop side. So if, you know, this is kind of like Microsoft's like, yeah, we'll run this. Sure. They were running it because they knew that every one of their PCs that had windows on it would get a copy of internet Explorer, which you probably don't remember it being called internet Explorer anymore, but it is. And all of that came out so they could run JavaScript. Now this was, you know, the elevation of JavaScript and it is the elevation and domination and the standard of where JavaScript came today. And it's just completely connected into every single browser. So if you have Chrome, it's in there. If you have, you know, Edge, it's in there. If you're using, uh, you know, uh, gosh, I'm trying to Mozilla is out, you know, just every single browser if you're using it's in there. And it's also in a lot of programming. So when you're running a game, say on even on your phone, and it's like you pull up the game and you're like, oh, I'm gonna run it. Could be in JavaScript as well. Um, very, very, very cool stuff. Why did I kind of talk about this? Was one, it's browser wars, really cool stuff. The other side of it is you've probably used JavaScript most of your inner quote, I'm doing air quotes here, internet life. Really, a lot of us didn't get on the internet to what, 93, 94 in the technical world if we were around. And other folks weren't getting on the internet till say 96, 98, but we were all running JavaScript. So all those early games, Farmville probably was based on something like JavaScript. I think it might've been on what's called Adobe Flash, which doesn't exist and it's horrible and it's very insecure, not secure. It is secure, but it's not. Okay. So really talking about all of that, we talked about APIs and we're almost done, I promise. APIs, application programming interfaces, are all these kind of sub smaller programs or functions that run inside of this program. So if I'm a programmer and I, again, want to do a print function, oh, look, HP has this. I'm going to include this for HP. Oh, look, all the major printer companies have it. I'm going to include it. Or... I'm just going to use what the operating system's using, which is an API from the printer you installed. You installed the API that I am now going to interface because I hit a print button that goes, I'm going to go point my API here directly at that. Now, it's the same thing as well when like you're hitting a help in a game. If you hit the help in a game, it probably hits an API for a help tool that's been built because they want to capture tickets and things like that. You're, you know, I did so. I like to think of APIs um, as an SAT question. So if you remember when we took the SATs, I will tell you why I remember that. <laughs> what, what my biggest memory of it is, is like, but the, the reason we think about it, what a program is and what an API is, is, and here are four questions for you. Computer languages can create a program for users. Okay, programs can work with humans. Sure. Programs can work with other computer programs and computers. Okay. APIs work with other computer programs and computers. Well, if you had to pick the right one, the best, I'm doing air quote, best choice. Remember the SAT would be like, pick the right one. Well, they were all kind of right. Oh, but that one's exactly right. APIs only work with other computer programs and other computers. They don't work with users. The user doesn't really input anything in the API. They hit something in the actual program that is called to the API and the API runs it there. Okay, so 
the funny part about the SATs for me is the thing I remember because it's been over 35 years is I had orange juice after the SATs. That still is the best orange juice I think I've ever had. That's how much the SATs bother me. And then we went to Century Three Mall in uh, South Hills of Pittsburgh, which that mall doesn't exist, but it did have a really awesome mall arcade. And I should probably do a podcast on mall arcades because they were awesome. All right. Some of the great things about APIs are they speed up programming. I don't have to write everything if I'm a programmer. I can pull things. I can build an application using a lot of different pieces and have my special spin on it. The other side of things is that they are really, really, really useful because they come out of software development kits. So before, as I said, the Java development kit, every language has a development kit where you'll have tools and you'll have things that plug directly in the operating system or into a game engine or into an internet browser. So you have all these different kinds. Now, there are three types of software development kits. You have the public ones, which is, you know, everybody feel free to come get one. Um, yeah, that's probably also uh, a little scary because unless it's like, hey, Microsoft's putting this out here and it and the files are signed by Microsoft, which means they've had a digital signature. That the private, if you create something for a company or your company says, hey, we built this whole software development kit for us all to use, write our stuff. Let's say Halo, built the Halo one. And then you're like, oh, I want to go use this on my other game over here, Snow Cone Manufacturer. And you use that API on it and you weren't supposed to use it because you probably signed an agreement. Company, and I'm not, let's say it's not Halo. Let's say it's a, let's say big dice company from above. And you're working on that <laughs> instead of picking on poor Halo. Because I like Halo, but they were just easy because I had this first game that came to my mind. But say you're working on a big dice company and you use an API from them to develop your snow cone game. They can now take ownership because you've got their code in there. So APIs are that way. Now, partner ones is where you work with, say, a company and then they give you the kit. So maybe you become a partner of Microsoft or you become a partner of Google or you become a partner of Oracle. You get those. All right. APIs have tons and tons and tons of function and the industry has gained from APIs. And in fact, it's gained a ton from graphics APIs. There's a couple big ones that are out there. You have DirectX, which is a really big one. You have Vulkan, which is a big one um, that are all on API side. I don't want to get too deep into it. Uh, but the other side of this is that from a graphical perspective, if I'm going to do 3D rendering, and I need a tool and I have my character and I built it in the microphone, you know, Visual Basic or Visual Studio and use just say Java and Visual Studio. And now I want to use the software development kit for Visual Studio. I can now just build my character right there and then put it into a 3D modeler. So see kind of the connection from the programming is that it then all starts connecting. So I can put in a 3D modeler and then I can put that into my game engine. And then I will look and see there's my character walking on the screen from when they were code over here. Look at the little lines of code all the way up to a character. It's a beautiful day. So this is really programming at a very high level. This is not getting into, you know, this is how syntax works. It was some, also some kind of, you know, pieces in there. I didn't want to pick on Halo. I feel bad now for it. I'm going to have to call somebody. I know who to call for to tell them I'm sorry. But I am going to go into, in a few other po podcasts, 
the development process. Like, how do we develop a game? And I have some friends I'm going to talk to, so we may have some special guests on there, as well as the roles and jobs in making games. And I think that's really important because just talking real quick about the roles and jobs is it's not people programming games. There are artists, and I've talked about that before. There are artists who are doing this. There are people in HR doing games. Now, they're not developing the games, but they're the people that help hire the people in the games. There are people who do marketing in games. So if you've ever thought about say, oh, man, I've been thinking about making a change and moving in the games. You can. I have a friend who's gone from the travel industry into the game industry. Now, they work in HR and they're not really developing games, but they have to have an understanding of the mindset. And they took what their passion is, their love of board games, and now they're working for board games. Okay. You know, then going, how can someone kind of get into that? What are the easy ways? And finally, where can I learn? Where can I become a, a person who wants to program? There are tons and tons and tons and tons of resources out there. I have a friend who's worked for two of them, and I'm hoping that she'll jump on my podcast. But the, the other side is you may be a hobbyist. Maybe you're somebody like me who wants to create a website. It's not the best website. It's very reference-wise. But maybe I want to learn how to do some programming, or maybe I wanted to build my own kind of fun game. I would love to build a tic-tac-toe game one day just to say I did that. I actually have built a text editor game. It was a lot of fun. I made a Pong game when I was younger, a lot of fun. Tic-tac-toe always seems fun because I would love to do the war games thing where it plays back and forth. So this is an entire set of podcasts, starting with this one, getting a little chunky, a little longer than, again, shorter than the last one, longer. But we are going to go deep into game development. And I want to because it is a cool, cool, cool industry. Last but not least, after games are developed, we are going to talk to community managers, the people who support the games. So if you're mean to those people, you should feel bad. Anywho, it's okay. You can feel bad. Just say you're sorry, and then you can feel better again. Just say how I totally made a mistake. All right. From that, next few podcasts about game development. And then I even have some cooler ideas that I've been going through and, and another kind of off the deep end kind of fun thing like VR. Thank you for listening as always. Again, this was a lot of fun. Took me back and gave me a lot of memories. Hopefully you had some too. Have a great day. Great night. Great morning. Great tomorrow. I'm not doing the Truman thing. Blech.